Welcome to the rollicking year of 1986. The year comics grew up or turned off the light. Think about it, folks. Yes, think about it. This week, we revisit 1986, where, for the first time, we had a crisis. We were watched by men. We also had a very dark night. And all in all, we were chasing a mouse. Yes, this is the year 1986. And this is the Comic Book Historian Podcast. With me, your host, Bill Field, and my cohorts in crime, Jim Thompson. Jim, hello. Hey, Bill. Hey, Hey, Alex. And Alex Grand. Hello, Alex. Hello, everybody. Cheers. Well, gentlemen, I know you're both quite verbose on this year because we've been talking about it for an hour before we even went on the recording here. I'd like to ask you both, what's your take on 1986? Jim, you're up first. 1986 is a game-changer year for sure. I think it produces an entire generation of comic fans different from the prior ones. It has great value and importance and some of the best works to ever come out of comics. At the same time, it has a legacy that one might argue is catastrophic to the joy that Silver Age comic fans held forth with comics because of the darkness that followed the very smart Dark Knight, Watchmen, and Mouse kind of projects. Do you think this is reflective because media itself was becoming dark? As of 79, we had movies that were box office blockbusters like Alien, the original Alien. Then we had an awful lot of other hero kind of predator, things like that were It was a darker forecast, Blade Runner perhaps. All of these things had a darker sense about them. If you ask me, Frank Miller's Ronin a year earlier was basically Blade Runner in comics. Well, Miller says that the Dark Knight concept really came from the Dirty Harry movies, and especially Sudden Impact. I think there's that level, going back to Death Wish even, that that's where Dark Knight comes from. I think with Watchmen, it's more philosophical deconstructionism, I mean, in a, in a much more sophisticated way, taking apart as parody and deconstructing the, the notion of what a superhero is. I guess, it, to some degree, you can link it to visually to some of that, but Frank Miller's taking visuals from so many different sources at this point that it's, it's hard to pin down something. Uh, It's also about maturing, you know, because we'll get to Crisis on Infinite Earths where they're trying to grow up a little bit to get a different teen market. And I think that has to do with retail as well because we're getting into direct sales, a mixture of a lot of different things. You also had a sense of salesmanship, of course, because it was growing up in how comics were packaged. You started having variant covers around this time. Three span covers, like the first cover of Crisis, was a threefold gateway issue, if you remember, with the wraparound cover and an interior that pulled out. You had a few of the Legion issues that were like that as well, not to mention Marvel was doing this on their end, too. Alex, what do you have to say about 1986? Well, I love 1986 for a more personal reason. I was eight years old, and that's when I really started hitting the comics pretty hard, was around 1986. The first comics I read, although I had He-Man mini-comics when I was younger and things like that, but the first stuff that hit me around 1986 was The Dark Knight Returns, which set a tone for me at that age of what a cool comic 
kind of was. Later on, though, I did get into the Thor by Ron Friends, and that lightened it up. Little did I know that that was, he was actually summoning a lot of Jack Kirby stuff at the time, but that kind of lightened up one of the things. And then Marvel also had West Coast Avengers, which kind of lightened it up in other ways. But if I wanted that cool, gritty, dark stuff, I went to The Dark Knight Returns and would just kind of look at that. Then I would walk through the comic book store, and I would see Mouse there, and I'd be like, what's that? What is that comic over there, that dark, interesting comic? And and then I would see Watchmen, and I'd be like, this is kind of complicated. I don't know if I want to read this. But later did I really appreciate what it was. It was a complete deconstruction I guess of a conservative superhero that was the Charlton line of 1967 that Dick Giordano and Steve Ditko set up to almost use them as an example of why superheroes can be a dark, horrible thing. And that's actually what they did with Dark Knight Returns. I mean, that's a far cry from the Batman that we all knew and loved from the late 60s. And it just made it where it was this dark almost fascist force that Batman was, the way he raised these skinheads to be his army of violence, for me as a kid in 1986, blew me away. I loved it. I wanted more of it. Because that was the first one of that year. That started in February. Watchmen comes out at the end of the year, uh, starting like in September or so. At least these are the issue dates. Dark Knight was right off the bat. It started at the very beginning of the new year with a February date. I wanted to remind people, we call it Dark Knight Returns today because most of us have picked these things up as trade paperbacks or absolute editions or things like that. But it originally was not Dark Knight Returns. That was simply, issue one was called that. They had four different titles. It was Dark Knight Returns, Dark Knight Triumphant, Hunt the Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Falls. So it had a story arc that was told by those titles as well. And that gets lost a little bit, just like Watchmen gets lost in that it was not a graphic novel. It was a 12-issue miniseries that was meant to be read one issue at a time and then mulled over and thought about for 30 days before the next issue, or longer, because they got uh, deadline problems. But these things were not graphic novels originally. They were serials that's lost somewhat today. The other thing I wanted to say about Dark Knight was, visually, it was so incredibly powerful that I think you forget that because I think Miller has now become something of a, a almost, I don't want to say a joke, but certainly his art is not appreciated in the way that it was at the time. I can't imagine, Alex, as a kid at that age, that you just weren't knocked right off your socks by that. For us, it was about the development, the change that he was evolving from Daredevil to this guy that just delivered this tour de force. But remember, this was a sector of the medium that he created with Ronan. We cannot forget that Ronan actually began this whole idea of deluxe miniseries. It also started with Thriller, which I don't know if either one of you guys ever read, but I thought it was fantastic. That was 1983 to 1984, but that was the year that DC actually, in my eyes, started growing up in the first place because they started doing the direct series that were going to be sold at comic stores and then publishing those stories in the regular comic book, the newsstand comic books a year later with Legion and Teen Titans. I don't, I don't know if you guys remember that era. I mean, that part of the era or not. Bill, I'm going to take exception with you because <laughs> that's what we do. Camelot 3000 is a starter. 
Thriller came out right around that same time, though, didn't it, Jim? Yeah, but it wasn't marketed as the same kind of limited miniseries the same way. I did a whole series on this recently on the Comic Book Historian's Face Group about the DC projects, and Camelot 3000 was the opening blow in terms of that. I must be one of the only people that loves Thriller. I, I thought Thriller was fantastic. Can you ever get a chance to read it, folks? With wonderful art by uh, Trevor Von Eden and then followed up by... Uh, Alex Nino. Nino, which I thought the Nino stuff was even better. But have you ever read that, Alex? No, uh-uh, but I will. Didn't you like it, Jim? It was a good series. Yeah. It just kind of fell apart. It didn't come to completion. Not as disastrously as Sonic Disruptors did. It kind of got lost in the shuffle. I like it. Was Sonic Disruptors by Mike Barron? Yeah. Okay. I'll have to give him a hard time about that later. Mike Barron, that is. You can't give him a harder time than he does about that particular piece. And this is 1986, too, so we're not, we're actually not going too far off. Right. Um, but, but going back to Dark Knight, what I wanted to say was, I don't think that's as negative as Watchmen is. I think Watchmen really is critical of superheroes. At the end of Dark Knight, we're celebrating the fascism. It won. They're completely opposite in terms of endings. In one, the good guys lost because we shouldn't trust the good guys in the first place. Who watches them? Who watches the Watchmen? In Dark Knight, we end in that celebratory cave where everybody is actually going to save the world. Something that I think came up in the Dark Knight Returns of those four issues was this funny concept that always kind of stuck with me in the back of my mind, that Superman was this Boy Scout who almost has this inferiority complex, always has to serve somebody, always has to serve the government or someone, being told what to do. A president can be somewhat condescending to him, and he just takes it like a good puppy. Whereas Batman, who always thought for himself, who never let himself get trapped in any one box, almost looks at Superman as like this pathetic bitch of the government or of whoever and can't think for himself and needs to be led, needs to be told what to do. And in that interpretation, it shows Superman as the dog and Batman as his master. And that fight that they did, it was almost like Batman was reminding Superman of that and then uses guilt against him to kind of overall still maintain some sense of dominance over Superman. And in his sequel, which is much later, it even has a panel, Superman saying something, and then Batman saying, here, shut up and fly me over there. I thought that was just a really interesting take on Superman. I think before we think truth, justice, and the American way and all that, but then it's almost like there's a naivete to that that's taken advantage of by various human beings. I think that 1986 kills Superman. Yeah, you made an excellent point that I wanted to hit on before we got any further, and that's that... Honestly, Watchmen and Dark Knight were the first two serious parodies in comics, in a sense, because there's quite a satirical edge to them both, and comic books, for the most part, in regular mainstream stories, had not exhibited that. And I think this is a big turning point. We, of course, had had a gazillion comical and comedy parody comics, but up until this point, we'd never had anything that was a dark and serious parody. Bill, yeah, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you on this. Before you say it, Squadron Supreme, was that what you were going to say? Yeah, of course. Okay, I'm I meant to bring that up first. You, God, dog, I can't get away with anything with these guys. <laughs> I could not do I had to say it. 
No, 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 you didn't. No, I'm, I'm, I'm heckling you for that. Squadron Supreme was the first dark parody, and it was because Marvel really harbored hate for DC in a lot of ways. They almost thumbed their noses at them with Squadron Supreme, don't you think? It was really evident that they were taking on the Justice League and the most recent Justice League, too. It wasn't like they were going back and trying to do the original. It was really in your face. I don't even think they tried to sue them or anything. I think they just let it go. They can't really sue, because one, you can't sue for satire, and two, they're totally different characters. They may mirror them, but those days of suing because someone had a superpower, that kind of went away in the early 60s, or late 50s. Superman, Captain Marvel. Yeah, I think the very last one was that um, Private Strong thing, where they sent a cease and desist because it was too much like Superman, but I don't know, that kind of went away once superpowers, superheroes, just kind of got really popular in the 60s. It's just the was out of the bag at that point. Right. It's interesting that you mentioned Squadron Supreme. I think that Squadron Supreme, I don't know how you guys feel about Mark Grunewald, but this was my era of Marvel Comics writer. No one loved Marvel more than Mark Grunewald. He loved Marvel so much and had so much of a passion for the characters that Kirby, Ditko, and Lee created that he brought everything into a cohesive universe. He wrote the Marvel Universe with Mike Carlin. He loved those characters. And I don't know if you've ever read his Quasar series, but he explores every aspect of the Marvel Universe, like from Eternity to the Living Tribunal to all those characters to come up with a cohesive universe that made sense. And he even explored going beyond it and the metaphysical concepts of that. Honestly, there would no, be no crisis on Infinite Earth without Mark Grunwald. He had nothing to do with it except he had his own fanzine that he published, I think, three or four issues of. Jim, you remember this Omniverse, which I still have my copy somewhere around here. I swore by that as a kid because it basically gave you a roadmap to all the different universes from DC and Marvel and how they might someday merge, and that's exactly what's happened. And I will say that Mark Grunewald, his Squadron Supreme, there is no one that could deconstruct the Justice League at that time and get away with it as well as he did. It publishes 12-issue series. Mark loved all the universes, and he also had a good relationship with Jim Shooter, who then said, yeah, print what you want, wrote out the Marvel Universe, like I said before. This is his territory, and he was so critical in the 1980s that he had kids like me at that time just enthralled, like wanting to know how it all fits together. And he died right after that, by the way, and I believe his uh, ashes were mixed in the ink for uh, one of the Squadron Supreme titles. Yeah, for like a reprint or something. And he died in 96. He had had his run on Captain America that was hecka long. It was more than a decade. It was forever. It was forever. Werewolf Cap. Yeah, Wolf Cap and all that. I've read every issue of that multiple times, and I love... Was he already writing when Jim Byrne was drawing... John Byrne? No, no, that's Roger Stern. Oh, duh. Yeah, that's right. That was Roger Stern. Grunewald was actually after that. That was after the Steve Englehart run, which was actually fairly long, too. But he died in 96. He had let go of his Captain America character. Rob Liefeld had just started his weird uh, reinvention, image reinvention of Captain America. And I'm not saying there was any relationship between the two events, but, yeah, he died of a heart attack. There was some genetic heart defect he had. That was really the time when old Marvel died. When you look at the ownership and how it all changed and how it all just kind of got raped apart in half and then reemerged as a Joe Quesada Marvel, old Marvel died with Mark Runewald. And I can't stress enough how important he was to Marvel in 1986.
Mark Wade had taken over Captain America and was doing great. And then it got interrupted by that, is how I recall. Because it was a kind of a one-two punch, because Grunewald really understood the character. And then Wade, I think, was born to do Captain America. In fact, it's the only Marvel character that Wade liked as a, as a kid was Captain America. And he was doing it with one of the Kuberts. And it was, it was good stuff. I know that Mark had discontinued Captain America and Quasar around the same time. And both of them ended on very down notes on very almost sad points, where Quasar was permanently separated from this woman he loved, and she was trapped, she couldn't get to her. And then Captain America actually died in that final issue but of some disease. But then, you're right, now I'm remembering. Captain America died, and then Mark Wade took over, and he was alive, actually, and then starts off a whole other adventure. Then Heroes Reborn is after that. And this may be a complete theatrical interpretation of what happened. It probably is. I think it was probably more the, the discontent in Marvel that contributed to his heart condition. Sean Howe in the Marvel Comics Untold Story writes that after he reads the first issue of Rob Liefeld's Captain America, he died, which I think is almost theatrical and probably not true. Well, but those pecs. I mean, that that's enough to give me a heart attack. No offense. But I will say this. Another thing that was going on about that time, which we haven't touched on yet, was during the uh, run of Steve Weidel and Keith Giffen, the Kessels, working on uh, Legion of Superheroes, which that was really being put through the paces and changing, actually becoming a more adult comic book in and of itself. The teenagers were no longer teens. They were in their early 20s. And then they did this strange five years after job where suddenly you had a character that was a direct descendant of Superman and Kent Shakespeare, rather, and he was one of the most interesting characters to ever come out of Legion of Superheroes. That was a run that I still love. I was never thrilled with Giffen's artwork. I always loved Steve Lytle's and still do to this day. He's still doing covers for whenever they do the Legion. Uh, what did you guys think of that? Is that the run of the Great Darkness saga? That's That's part of that, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I loved it. In the middle of this run, everything changes because we lose Superboy. We lose Superboy with Crisis on Infinite Earth. How? When it relaunched, John Byrne writes that Superboy never existed. So they have to recreate the Legion without the whole purpose of the Legion, which is to honor Superboy. And Supergirl is written out of existence. Well, she dies first, and then she's written out of existence, right? She dies, but Crisis becomes the new DC unified universe, and with that, the Legion becomes a very complicated and confusing product, which is what you're talking about. In, in the notion of the death of Superman, we get a heroic goodbye in 1986 that we have to talk about before we go to crisis, which is whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. Okay, so then Alan Moore writes the final Superman adventure in those issues. And on the cover, they said goodbye to Julius Schwartz, who ended his career on Superman. Kurt Swan then gets taken off of Superman and gets made room for the new Marvel John Byrne writer-artist, rewrites everything. And although that is the Superman that I grew up with, I will say, some would say that it killed off and deleted everything that made Superman special from the 40s through the 70s and early 80s. The Alan Moore send-off of Silver Age Superman, that was wonderful. I, I thought those two issues were fantastic and probably one of the best things he's ever done. And he does it the exact same month that the first issue of Watchmen comes out. So you've got on the stands, 
You've got a swamp thing traveling through space. You've got Watchmen number one, and you've got whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, two issues in one month, that Superman issue and that action issue. At that point, I would have married Alan Moore if he'd worked in a room. He was Jack Kirby. He was as big or bigger than Jack Kirby was to me at that moment in time. And he took something very, very strange that a lot of people don't realize, but I know Jim, Jim will know this, but now you probably will too. There was, if you remember, they went back in time, I believe it was in a Justice League story, Jim, you'll have to help me with that, but they went back to the very beginning of time, and they see a blue hand come down out of the sky. Do you remember that, Jim? You're you're talking about Crisis now? Well, no, no, I'm talking about in early 60s comics. Well, it's Green Lantern, yeah. It's, It's the origin of the Green Lanterns. Right, and that was the beginning of time, they said. That blue hand is now being seen as the hand of Dr. Manhattan, and now we have a series coming out relatively soon called Doomsday Clock, Jim. I don't know if you're aware of that, where it basically says that Dr. Manhattan created the DC Universe. Is it that Dr. Manhattan was so disenchanted with his world that he created a more positive world? Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, in a lot of ways. He he created the Silver Age. He didn't create the... I mean, I don't know how they're going to do it in Doomsday Clock, and I probably won't pick it up, because, you know, you know this has got to be pissing off Alan Moore to the extreme, because he didn't like the fact that they did all the before Watchmen books, which none of those really were... Nearly the quality of Watchmen, if you ask me. Jim, I'm sure you'll disagree and tell me, I love the one. No, I'm just joking. Uh, I like the Darwin Cook stuff, but, I mean, it's not it's not the same. But right. that, that Darwin Cook Minute Man is, is pretty good. That was really good. Yeah, I mean, and I agree. But it never reached the, nothing reached the pinnacle that Watchmen itself did. No. Nor did I expect it to. Alex, what do you think about that? I look at it in two ways. I think that if you want to be a continuity horror like me, is that at the end of Watchmen, he says, I'm going to go off and create universes at the very end. So that does kind of link in with that blue hand in the origin of the Green Lanterns. But then there's also another aspect of, okay, we're ruining a good thing. That's not Alan Moore's point. And be very creator-obsessed, which I am. But at the same time, I look at DC saying, well, look, you know, comics are kind of falling apart. Our sales aren't as good as maybe they were. we got to reinvigorate interest. Look, we've had our hands off of these characters for 30 years. Screw it. Let's just bring them in. People like it. We'll see what happens. Let's jumpstart it. Right. I have to agree with you on that. I think that's a good point. After Crisis, we have Man of Steel, that six-issue series, and that changes, that's a dividing point for comic people in a way that very few things are. They're the older readers that love their Silver Age Superman. They love their Kurt Swan. They had Kurt Swan for like 30 years. A lot of the young people like me really liked John Byrne a lot at the time. So when they, and Julia Schwartz is leaving, so you have this, new era of Superman in the the Man of Steel comics where he's kind of rewritten to be a little more edgy, less of the Kryptonian baggage, way less of the Kryptonian baggage. So you have the older readers. And again, this is like what happened to me when they did Brand New Day with Spider-Man. I got so invested 
And then when they rebooted or retconned or changed things or the continuity, it pushed me away as a reader. So the older readers that loved the Kurt Swan, Julia Schwartz stuff were clearly disappointed, but then new kids like me who were eight years old at the time and saw it on a newsstand wanted to see what this muscular suit man was all about and trying to figure out his more humane Clark Kent personality. That was a lot more interesting to me than learning what a Kryptonian marriage ritual looked like. We could go through it almost character by character in that Lex Luthor is one of the changes that a lot of people liked. And for me, Alan Moore wrote the best depiction of Lex Luthor as the smartest guy on the planet, probably until Grant Morrison did All-Star Superman and did an equally good job. That's my Lex Luthor is he's the super genius of all time. And Alan Moore had that depiction of him coming in and solving how to kill Swamp Thing in three minutes for a billion dollars or whatever it was. And it was perfect. And then John Byrne comes in and just makes him into a business guy who sexually harasses waitresses at diners. And I hated every minute of it. And I hated every minute of John Byrne making Big Barter and Superman into porn stars. And I hated so many things, but most of all, I hate, and I, I mean it hate, that Byrne is the guy that as he's going out and shutting the door after two years of, in my mind, ruining Superman, he walks out and says, oh, by the way, Superman just killed all the Phantom Zone people, executed them. John Byrne is responsible for, it's like he spread his legs and Zack Snyder popped out. So the last 30 years, this modernized, darker DC, Jim is not a fan get why the prima donna left DC in the first place because he did not like how he was portrayed in the Superman 50th anniversary TV special. You know, I love John Byrne to death, so I really shouldn't call him a prima donna. But at the time, I do believe he believed his own, you know, promos. But he got so mad because of the kind of comical way that they portrayed aspects of Superman, including... I think he even got mad at Mike Carlin because of things Mike Carlin said in interviews for it. But he was so incensed that he wasn't the son that everything revolved around, the red son, by the way, that he uh, took his toys and went home and wound up going back to Marvel shortly thereafter. And uh, that's when he started doing uh, West Coast Avengers, I believe, Alex. Yeah, and he had changed it to Avengers West Coast. Oh, right. A more classy version of the West Coast. The Avengers West Coast. Yeah, put your pinky in the air. The Avengers West Coast. Will you pour us a spot of tea? Tea Earl Grey. But he also did a lot of things to Vision and Scarlet Witch that a lot of people didn't like at the time. Again, he was going around just kind of deconstructing a lot of things, just tearing a lot of things apart at the time. But me as a kid... I liked it because I didn't know what came before. And what happened in the 70s and 60s wasn't a huge concern to me as an 8-year-old in 1986. But I loved the John Byrne stuff at that time. And I made it a point to make sure to read every John Byrne issue of anything. But as I've gone back and I've looked at what Steve Englehart did with West Coast Avengers, I love that run. Although visually, the John Byrne run is funner to look at. I don't think anybody ever has a problem with his artwork. I do. Those Wonder Woman stories, when he took over Wonder Woman, it was awful. Yeah, I have to agree. However, I do want to take up for him in the sense that his X-Men stuff, of course, is beyond good in my eyes. It, it was fantastic, especially the Days of Future Past. Those two issues 
were to me his penultimate. It, it, they were even better than the death of Jean Grey. Jim, you take exception to that? No, no. I, I, I'll go even further. I love his Fantastic Four, but then he goes to D.C. and he ruins my life. So, so there's that. There's a thought that when some artists or some writers or whoever, they hit a certain point in their careers, some point where they're just so active and so good. His change in Superman did revitalize the sales. I mean, it was a huge point and moneymaker, but some wonder when someone gets to that point, kind of like when, and again, I hate naming too many people, but when Neil Adams did the Muhammad Ali Superman, there are just certain points where you can see the before and after is different. And when he was doing Fantastic Four, he was really hitting a high note. And then maybe once he hit Superman, then when he came back, maybe there was an anger, maybe there was an edge to it, maybe there was something a little toxic going on. He kind of deconstructed all the stuff that we liked. But again, it was the era of deconstruction, like we're talking about, 1986, the year comics grew up. It was an era that things were getting torn apart. And that, for John Byrne, culminated in his next men series, where things were just getting deconstructed, deconstructed. Then I think once the mid-90s hit, and everything was so absolutely just raped against the wall, splattered, there was an urge then to kind of come back to something more innocent and I think George Perez Avengers in the early 2000s is an example of trying to get back that innocence again there was an apology almost where people wanted the classic stuff back but yeah 1986 which is the topic we're on the beginning of active commercial massive deconstruction of everything that was built and hey it is what it is but that was my era I was into that at the time I'd be delinquent if I didn't say and Jim I bet you'll agree with me on this burn stole so Evidently, from Mobius, Jean Girard, for uh, all of his Kryptonian scenes, all of that was European comics, and I think Byrne would be the first to admit that. You didn't think so, Jim? Oh, no, I was just looking for a bucket to throw up in. I hate that stuff so much. The re-envision of Krypton. The cold, antiseptic world where they didn't even get birth. In in defense of Byrne, I will say one thing. It's not like he came in and this was all his idea. It was a consensus view that Superboy had to go. It was a consensus view that Superman had to be depowered down a little bit, that he'd become too powerful during the Silver Age. Supergirl, Wolfman took care of that before he'd even got to burn. Steve Gerber, Frank Miller, and Marv Wolfman were all on this panel, and they were all discussing these things needed to happen. So it wasn't just Byrne. Byrne was just the executioner of my childhood. Something we should bring up is what really caused this, I don't know if you want to call it a reinvigoration or the elimination or the deconstruction or the destruction of DC, but it all comes down to the marvelization of DC, which happens, what, every 10 years or so. But when Jim Shooter came and he sent a lot of the writer-editors didn't like the new arrangement, didn't want to lose their editorial role, and they left Marvel, which Jim has come up on. So who did you have? You had... Roy Thomas, Gene Colan, but then you also did have Marv Wolfman specifically coming to DC, who then, with his new Teen Titans, gets a lot of action and almost starts to rival X-Men in sales. Him and George Perez did such a good job with Teen Titans that a lot of the other titles were kind of missing that they were then assigned to Crisis on Infinite Earths, which then is the catalyst or the explosion of the new hardcore DC, which John Byrne was in, hired as an executioner of the Superman franchise. 
But John Byrne also left Marvel because one of the things was Jim Shooter. So you have all these guys going to DC. And then what do they do? They bring that Marvel, darker, edgier stuff with them. Jim is saying it killed his childhood. I say that it was just one of the things I just saw in the store. I was oblivious. I was ignorant. I was like a deer in headlights. These cause and effects of these Marvel people coming in, changing DC into something that's not really that same DC energy anymore, I think that culminates in 1986. Now, again, Alan Moore, the British invasion, that has a huge part to do with it as well. But, yeah, I mean, Frank Miller comes from Daredevil and brings that energy to the Dark Knight. This is just a part of DC becoming more like Marvel in the 80s. They knew that they were going to have to put up or shut up. And that forced Marvel then to start paying their artists much better and giving them a slice of the pie. So this was all really good for the artists and writers at this time. Yeah. And it's probably the time where they made the most money ever because now, you know, DC is going to the Philippines for most of their artwork because they can get it so dirt cheap. And those guys are fantastically skilled artists. The direct market industry and the success of the writers and artists, they were making more money in the 80s than they ever did, before or after. Again, the 80s were awesome for a lot of reasons, and commerce was one of those reasons, and those guys did great. Artists, writers that get into the industry now, as liberated as they may feel about modern times and everything's so great now, and everything was horrible back then, no, they can't even imagine how successful Chris Claremont was, for example, or John Byrne was, for example. Those writer-artists were so rewarded for their work in the 80s. It was a golden time for those guys, and they miss it. When I talk to them at conventions, they miss those days. Absolutely. Because I talked about Alan Moore and what he did during that single couple of months with the Superman stories and the Swamp Thing and Watchmen, I want to give Miller his due as well because... In that year, it wasn't just Dark Knight. I think people forget that he went back to Marvel and wrote Daredevil 226-233. Some of the strongest writing work he ever did, I think, was those seven issues of Daredevil. And then they went back over to DC and did... Year one, again, still in that period, 96, or 86 rather, is a tremendous year for Miller as well as for Moore. Those guys are giants for that single year, at least. And I'm going to have to take this moment to mention my personal story of being Miller's assistant for four days and a driver in 1986 at the Dallas Fantasy Fair. I also was driver and assistant to Bern Hogarth of Tarzan fame we talked about last week. Also Dave Stevens from Rocketeer. The three of them in a car is beyond hilarity. Bern wanted to know how many parties there were at the convention. He was really into having a good time when he did these things because he was an older gentleman and he was just ready to party. But then you had Frank Miller who was right in the middle of dark night. And, you know, he was as dark as his comic books were at the time. He was also brooding in the way that Batman was in a lot of ways. He was a young man who was at the, the pinnacle of his art form at the time. Although he went on, of course, to do Sin City and many things that have left a huge imprint I want to still say that probably Dark Knight is the most important work of his career. Don't you think, Jim? <laughs> I, just I, I set you up. Every, I do that so you disagree else. with me more than anything. It's no. one of them for Good sure. Enough. Never agree with Bill Thompson. But then you had Dave Stevens, who was lighthearted and bubbly, just like the Rocketeer was. 
And then you had Bern Hogarth wanting to swing through the trees. So, you know, it, it, it was all, these guys acted like their work. You know what I'm saying? They were their work. Of anything I learned back then, I, I learned that whatever you see on the page, that's that guy, you know, that put it on the page. With that, fellows, believe it or not, we are at that time where it is time for the weekly rant, which absolutely is seems to be the fans we have right now. They seem to love this part best about the show. I don't know why, because I guess because we bitch a lot. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Jim, I'd like you to start this week's rant, because I know you have a good one. Well, it's not so much a rant in that I'm, I'm certainly not ranting against the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, which is what I'm going to be talking about. It's part of 1986. I guess I'm ranting against censorship. There you go. You're ranting for the CBLDF. There it is. You can rant good. But 1986 is the beginnings of what becomes the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, and it starts in Lansing, Illinois, in relation to Friendly Frank's Comic Shop and its manager, Michael Correa, C-O-R-R-E-A. Does anybody have a different pronunciation? Correa. Correa? Correa. So anyway, he was arrested for distributing obscenities, comics, specifically Weirdo, Robert Crumb, Omaha Cat Dancer, and Bizarre Sex. He was convicted, and thanks to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund that hired Burton Joseph as the attorney, they were able to overturn that conviction upon appeal. With the leftover money that they had for that, which was largely financed by comic book artists chipping in and selling art and doing things to raise funds, they established, with that remaining funds, the actual Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, and all the rest is censorship history, and we all owe them a great deal of gratitude. Well, thank you, Jim. That was very succinct, very beautiful. They've helped quite a few people since then. There was a guy in Florida who did a comic, and he was in his, like, 19 or 20, and he was actually put in an insane asylum for the comic. Do you remember that? And the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund wound up getting him out, I believe, or they had something to do with his defense. I can't remember what it was now. And on top of that, there was the Veritec case. The guys in Oklahoma imprisoned for selling Glenn Danzig's comics. Glenn Danzig didn't lift a finger, but the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund did, and they got them both out of jail. I don't know if you remember that. They are they essential. They do wonderful work. I also want to give a shout-out to people like Dave Sim and Eastman and Laird because they had an awful lot to do with getting the money in the early days and uh, donating a lot of their work to uh, auctions and the like, if you remember, Jim. Neil Gaiman is also has always right. been a, a major contributor. And Alan Moore, I believe, also. At San Diego Comic-Con, Alan Moore donated a couple copies of his original Swamp Thing scripts. Not the originals, but copies of them. And it's pretty cool to see in type, okay, and then John Constantine is this guy with a trench coat. It's just kind of cool that he's creating these characters on paper. Then also Frank Miller, although he's on the more right-wing side of the political arena, he has donated a lot to the CBLDF because he believes and the right for everyone to be able to express themselves without any sort of persecution. He actually donated, and I watched it all happen in front of me, some Sin City artwork. You should have seen the room. It was electric, and the bid went up to $17,000 to the CBLDF. I mean, it was a crazy room. 
Amazing. A really electric two minutes where everyone wanted it. I don't know how he reacted to knowing that that art sold for 17 grand, but it was just this two-page splash. It was this amazing donation to the CBLDF, which I thought was really amazing. Was that the party we all went to? Remember how in that room they actually had those original art pieces on the table? That piece was on that table, so we all saw it. We all looked at it. That's spectacular. And Alex, let's get to your rant this week. My rant is not necessarily, a, yeah, we always keep saying they're not necessarily rants, but they, I mean, maybe they are. My rant is going to be more about Jim Shooter and Marvel around 1986 was an interesting year for me personally, because like we say, it's the death of old DC in 1986. In a way, it was also the death of the Marvel that we were all very comfortable with. New Line Entertainment bought Marvel from Cadence Industries, which was Perfect Film and Chemical, and they bought it from Martin Goodman in 68. Jim Shooter had such a positive relationship with executives at Cadence that there was this almost six, seven harmonious years. I don't say harmonious because there's a lot of drama in the Jim Shooter reign, but of Marvel just pumping out great product. You know, Frank Miller's Daredevil. We got Walt Simonson's Thor. We have Chris Claremont's X-Men, John Byrne's Fantastic Four. I mean, these were good days. We had Cap America's Rogerster and John Byrne run, although they stopped because of Shooter. But again, and we had the New Mutants coming out. We had Louis Simonson pumping out great, great writing. But in 1986, everything changes. New Line Cinema, who didn't have as strong of a relationship with Jim Shooter at all. Then we have the people, the artists and writers, working under Jim Shooter, upset. Evidently, there was some public display of not liking him. Whatever the exact details were, Jim Shooter then gets fired the next year by New Line Inter- Entertainment. But one of the things that Jim Shooter did do in 1986, right before he got fired, was the new universe, where they say he had fantasized about just killing off the whole Marvel universe and just starting fresh. At any rate, he kind of got his wish with New Universe, which was just a whole separate line of books that went for a few years. And that was his idea of doing something different and fresh, the way Bill mentioned, the way DC was doing with their entire universe there. But it didn't sell so well, and it was just essentially the decline of this man that did make Marvel in his image for a solid seven years. And I think 1986, because of the change in corporate ownership, is the death of the Marvel that we're really familiar with at that point. That's fantastic, Alex, and that's very succinct as well. It's the succinct twins this week, folks. It's... They're, they're very clear on what they're saying. They're very focused. Yes, indeed. We could spend a long time talking about the negatives, or I could, of oh, Shooter's sure. run and the great exodus of the really fantastic early 70s people like Don McGregor and Steve Gerber and everybody virtually that I liked left because of Jim Shooter. Totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. And according to Alex, of course, his saving grace is he didn't create Matter Eater Lad. But that's another story altogether. Just joking, folks. Yeah, that was Jerry Siegel. So we talked about that. Jim found that out. You you noted that that wasn't Shooter's fault. Although I love Matter Eater Lad. I I mean, who wouldn't want superpower being able to eat anything, including guns and bombs? I mean, there's nothing like seeing a teenage boy in all fours eating a bunch of rocks. That's kind of cool. Why didn't that catch on? I just can't imagine why. I can't either, but I do. My my favorite thing is he ate a bomb and then he burps the explosion. <laughs> I I I don't know. I to me that that was the pinnacle of great weird superhero powers. So my rant this week is all based on a meme, and what I mean is is 
Yesterday, I posted a meme in Facebook, and I, I didn't really expect to uh, create an explosion of people's feelings, but I thought it was pretty funny, and I'll tell you what happened. This is the meme, and you don't have to see the picture to uh, get the joke, but Disney owns Marvel. Marvel owns Thor. Thor is the son of a king. Thor is now female. That means Thor is now a Disney princess. And, oh, my God. I got the responses off of this, but the one most notable is by the man that's been a mentor to me by his artwork and by what he's done and arguably has created the most iconic comic book image that's been uh, used over and over again in the last few years, and that's David Lloyd, the man who created the uh, Guy Fox mask that we've all seen. And David Lloyd commented this way. He said, listen. I'm going to do it in a British accent because David's British. Listen, it's all about business. Right thinking to make more business or wrong thinking to make less. Like with Superman's mullet or giving Thor a beard, it's business. That's it. Spend time energizing for better causes than conserving things that belong to companies who don't care about the integrity of any piece of creativity as long as they can change it to their will to make more money than they believe they can by keeping its originally quality in nature. Well said, Mr. Lloyd. Well said. He is a gentleman and a genius. And Trevor Thompson said, and who are you? I'm Thor. You're Thor? Well, it hurts. Okay. Um, so that, I know it's a bad joke. I mean, we all have heard the Thor, Thor, ba- <laughs> Jim's rolling his eyes at me. I, I know, I, I know I've gone too far. But what do you guys think about the Disneyfication of Marvel? It's, and Star Wars for that matter. We're a comic book podcast, but they buy up these properties and then you do see massive change at hand. What do you think, Alex? Well, that's a good point. And I was talking about this the other day at a Boy Scout meeting. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not a Boy Scout. And, uh, and I don't hang out at them either. <laughs> Spacey. <laughs> Strangely enough, folks. Hello, young children. Um, when Disney bought Marvel, what, it was like 2007, I forgot what it was, my main anxiety was the Disneyfication of that Marvel franchise because Marvel wasn't as corporate as DC was at the time. DC was under Time Warner for a really long time. Although Marvel was under a corporation, it wasn't like at that Disney level of this massive global corporate brand. And so they were able to almost kind of do their own thing for a long time, and writers and artists can enjoy a more laid-back atmosphere than DC and just come out with fun stories and somewhat just enough countercultural to be fun for me as a kid growing up. I think once Disney eventually, and I think Disney just kind of sat back and let Marvel do their thing. But as the years have gone on and it's become more cinematic and the movies are making money and now they want the comics to have synergy with the movies, I almost feel like the Marvel brand... There are corporate mandates now that are making it into the literature saying, okay, now the market says this has to be in the comic now. Now this has to be in the comic. Okay, so these editors, I think, are translating that into what corporate wants 
And then maybe try to mix in some of their own flavor to it, but it's not as potent. I think it's diluted. I think the brand isn't as interesting for me now. Maybe because I'm 39. Maybe I'm not supposed to be reading comics anymore. I don't know. It's become more bland and sterile. Them using the same computer programs to make the comics like they are at DC. Now there's way less of a distinction between the DC and Marvel styles, which Jim actually noted once, that there isn't as much of that distinction anymore. And I feel like Disney owning it, corporate mandates, certain structures that have to be in place as one of their branches now has taken a lot of flavor out of it. It's almost like you have that Mexican restaurant that nobody owns, that hole-in-the-wall place that's awesome. Then it gets bought out by global Coca-Cola market, and then they've corporatized it, and now you've lost a lot of that original flavor, and I feel like that's what's happened to Marvel. And Jim, do you have anything to say about this? Well, okay, first, in terms of Star Wars... Thank God they bought it. I mean, look what they've done with it. They revitalized it. It was fantastic. No, I have to agree with you. And also what Paramount and CBS has been doing with Star Trek, it's almost like they're both at their best homes they've ever had. I don't have an issue with Star Wars at all. I think they've handled it. I mean, sure, they're selling the hell out of it. I have no issue with that. I'm very happy before George Lucas did something else stupid. So there's that. As far as Marvel, I'd probably disagree with the assumption that the bad things are Disney, and the reason is because I thought Marvel was killing the brand before Disney took it over with the miniseries and the Civil Wars and and all of that. It became where you could not have a sustained storyline because of these big events, and that both Marvel and DC, but it's not a Disney creation, it's a comic book company creation, and I think all of the flaws that are currently in there, I would say were already baked into the goods before Disney took over. And I certainly don't like a lot of business practices of Disney, but I'm not going to blame them for Marvel doing a lot of subpar work at this time. Amen, brother. And that brings us to the end, sadly, of this week's Comic Historian Podcast, and you know what? It's been a whirlwind, folks, and gentlemen, you've outdone yourselves today. Jim, you've disagreed with me more than ever. Alex, you've laughed at us disagreeing more than ever, and I... I... There you go again. I don't think this was a record. I think this was maybe the second most I've ever disagreed with you. Yeah, yeah, you disagreed with me far more in 1966. (laughs) I will say that, although you guys disagreed a good number of times... The disagreement didn't last 40 minutes like it has before. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's true. I remember looking at some of this footage, and I'm like, whoa, this argument's going like 40 minutes here. Woo! No, no. And and Jim, Jim, Jim and Alex are both close friends of mine, folks. And, you know... We do disagree sometimes, but we love each other. It's like family. It's like, you know, you really you can, you know, pick your friends. You can pick your nose, but you can't pick your family. And these guys are definitely family to me. And I have to say, this has been one of my favorite episodes because we did have fun with it. And, guys, until next time, I'm Bill Field and Jim Thompson. Say goodnight, Gracie. Good night. Hi, Gracie. <laughs> say goodnight, Alex. Guten Nieten. Is that correct, Jim? You're the German one, aren't you? Um, yes, and, and yes, spot on. <laughs> I'm wrong. Okay. So, so, <laughs> we wide elitists here. 
So, fellas, I want to thank you, and I want to thank our fans. And if you want to call yourselves that, it, you can fan yourself because it's going to be a hot winter. We'll see you next time here on the Comic Historian Podcast. Good night. I'm Bill Field. Over and out. Woo! Yes. And then we'll just reconvene in five or two, three minutes. One minute, one minute, one minute. I don't need five minutes to pee, Bill. <laughs> I do. I'm old. I'll just fuck you out.